We're going to start this series with a quote by A.W. Tozer, which says this, which says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will, you you went ahead of me there, bud. Spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. By a secret law of the soul, whatever your mental image is of God, you will gravitate towards that image of God that you have in your mind. How you view yourself, how you pray, how you relate to others, how you think about the future will all be tied up in your mental image of God, how you view him. So my question as we start this series is what does your God look like and where did you get that image? See, I ask this question because all of us have a distorted view of God. The question is how distorted? I happened across something uh, this week. I was doing some study and, and I, I Googled some stuff and I came across the title of this book and it just stuck out to me. And here's the title of the book. It says, America's Four Gods. That, that just caught my attention. America's Four Gods, what we say about God and, and what they say about us. This was written by a couple of Baylor um, University professors and they discovered that 95% of Americans believe there is a God. Yay, 95%. The problem they can't agree on what God looks like. And so these ideas come from Americans, but not necessarily from the Bible. The first one was somebody, some folks believe in an authoritative God. And here's what that means. God is like a literal father, both engaged as a positive force in the world and as a, and a judge of the behaviors of mankind. Suffering can be the result of social and individual sin. Somebody may have sinned against you or you may choose to sin. Second idea that comes from Americans is the benevolent God. God is mainly a force for good in the world, a being who answers the prayers of individuals and comforts the suffering. Third idea of God in America, the critical God. God is less likely to be concerned with moments in the lives of individuals, but man, he is going to dole out punishment in the next life. And the authors point out this is a very popular view of God with poor and oppressed people around the United States and and around the world. Fourth idea of God is the distant God. God is a cosmic force that sets the laws of nature into motion, but then he kind of takes his hands off the day-to-day and is not really involved. Who's right? That's what we're going to try to figure out in this series. See, what, they, what the author said is if you find out a person's image of God, that tells you a whole lot more about that person and how they're going to act in the future than if you know what denomination they're a part of or what particular church they attend. Who's right? Well, we want to open up the Bible in this series and find out what God says about God in the Bible. We want to see the real God. And let me just say this. You do not discover things about God. You don't stumble on to things about God, God reveals himself to you. And as he reveals himself to you, if you, if you respond to that revelation, God will make sure that you see more and more of him. If you reject what he reveals of himself and you turn your back and you walk away from God, God is a gentleman and he will not force himself on you. He'll let you walk away until you are ready to respond to his revelation. It's kind of like light and darkness. If God brings a little bit of light into your life, and if you move towards that light, representing Jesus Christ, representing the image of God, God will make sure that you have more light. But if you choose darkness, God says, I love you enough to give you free choice, and you can move towards that darkness, and I will not interfere until you turn back to me and respond to my revelation. Now, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to go out on a limb today and say this over and over. I think your image, my image of God is much too small. 
Because anytime in scripture, when someone came across the real God, they are face down. There's, there's no casual interaction. There's no, oh, you know, me and the man upstairs, my buddy upstairs. If you ever say, I hope the man upstairs is listening. Can I let you in on a secret? He's not listening because you don't know who he is and you're not seeing him appropriately. He's not some casual being that you just stroll into his presence whenever you want to. See, this is a name. This is a God whose name, his revealed name was so holy, people wouldn't even say it out loud for fear that they would um, uh, take the name of the Lord in vain. And here's, here's what they, this is the revealed name of God. Y-H-W-H. We have no idea how it's pronounced because they would not pronounce it. Israel would not pronounce it in the Old Testament. There are still people today who will not pronounce it. So we just guess. We put, a, we, uh, Americans, and various translations, we put Y-A-H-W-E-H and we think it's pronounced Yahweh, but we have no idea because anybody who served the real God in Israel wouldn't say this name. They were afraid to say this name. And in fact, the scribes and Pharisees, when they'd be copying the scripture and they came to this, they would write out Y-H-W-H. Then they would get up from wherever they were copying the scriptures. They would go and ceremonially wash and confess their sins before they ever came back and started copying the scriptures again because they did not want to offend the real God. They had a rather large image of God. So I have a rather big question for you today that you need to address in this series. How big is your God? Because I'm guessing your God's a little small compared to the one in the scripture. Uh, Now, when we start thinking about what God is really like, there's some mistakes we make. One of the mistakes we make is we think God is like us. Let me just tell you, God is not like you. Now, if your God is like you, your God's too small. When we look at God, we will not see a reflection of ourselves, but we would like to. See, our tendency is to take the kindest, most um, religious person, maybe the most benevolent person, the most holy person, and multiply that by 10 or 100 or a million and say, that's what God must be like. But I'm just going to tell you, that's not right. That's not what the scripture shows us. The Bible tells us God is not like us. People, humans, get tired and get weary. The real God does not. We're going to read that in just a second. The real God never gets tired or weary. People, there are things that you and I do not understand, but the real God, he never even has a question in his mind because he's in charge. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. Um, He's all wise. He is not like us. And I'm studying the book of Psalms right now in my devotional time, and what I discovered is people can rail against the real God, and it says that no matter how chaotic it is in earth, on earth, the throne room of heaven is perfectly calm because the real all-powerful God is in charge. And it doesn't matter that people get mad at him and throw things at him. God says, I'm in charge and I, my will will be accomplished. Uh, so let me, let me let you in on, on a secret. There are only two categories of beings. Two categories. First one is created things. That's like um, people, animals, dogs, trees, whatever is created. There's a second category occupied by only one, and that's God. He is not like us. He is so high above us. In Isaiah, it says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is not like us. That's the concept of, of the word holy, which means separate. He is so different from us. He's way above. He's not like us, but in every religion, including Christianity, there are people who try to shrink God to manage him. They want to control him. This is not a new problem. In the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the 
Israelites were making idols and worshiping idols, images that they could control. And God sent Isaiah the prophet to them. And he says this in Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 25. God's speaking here and God says, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? Says the holy one. There's no other holy one. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Time out. God says, I know all the names of all these stars. I put them there. I spoke and they were there. And I just finished studying the book of Job. Job, for 40 chapters, Job is railing and he's going, I'm innocent, God. I wish God would show up and I would have a debate with him. I'd show him I'm innocent and then God would be forced to show these people around that I'm innocent. After chapter 40, God shows up and God says, hey, Job, where were you when I hung these stars in their place, when I hung the earth on its axis, when I did all of this stuff? Where were you, Job? He did not answer Job's question. And Job said, oh, my God, I will not speak again. He discovered quick, fast, in a hurry, God's not like us. And you don't want to go to court with God. That's what he was saying. I want to go to court with God. And then he says, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I do not want to go to court with God because you're not like human beings. Back to what he says to the Israelites. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel? Now, I'm going to put new life in here because this is just as relevant to us today. Why do you say, O new lifers, or assert, O new lifers, that my way is hidden from the Lord and justice do me escapes me, escapes the notice of God? Why do you say God's not paying attention? It's because you don't know him. Why do you think God doesn't see your sin? It's because you do not understand who he is. Look what God, these are God's words. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. God is always paying attention. You never catch him off guard. He is his own category. He is not like us. That's why the very first of the 10 commandments says no other gods, not an image of a God, not an idol, not anything in my sight. He says, don't you dare try to shrink me into a box that you can control. When my kids were little, we used to read um, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia books to them. We would have several nights a week, sometimes five, six. We would would just read the books to them. Before bedtime, we'd gather in the living room, we'd read. And one of my favorites is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's a scene in that where the children have gone to Narnia. Narnia is a different place, so it's like a spiritual world. And so when they go to Narnia, there are animals that can speak, the animals that are under the control of Aslan. Aslan is, is a large lion, I mean a massive lion, representing Jesus Christ. And so the children haven't met Aslan yet. They're asking questions of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and here's what happens. Lucy, she's about a third grader, so about eight years old. Lucy says, um, is he, Aslan, a man? Aslan, a man, said Mrs. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king with a capital K. He is king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Hello, got to get back there. Let me see. Oh, hang on. Where'd it go? There it is. Great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king, capital K, of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. Then he goes, no, no, the lion with a capital L, the great lion. So then Susan, her older sister, who's about 14 or 15, Susan goes, oh, I thought he was a man. Then she says, is he he quite safe? Talking about Jesus, talking about Aslan. And then she says, I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver braver than most or they're just plain silly. Back to Lucy, the third grader. 
Then he isn't safe, she asked. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good, and he's the king. I'm going to go out on a limb again and say, I think your image of God is too small, and it needs to be enlarged if you're going to understand who he is. See, God is not tame. He's not tame. God is not on call. God is on the throne. He's creator, and we are the created. He's in a different category. In a couple of weeks, now now we're going to spend seven weeks. The next seven weeks, we're going to look at a different attribute of God each week. Next week, we're going to look at God as good. Two weeks from today, we're going to look at God as sovereign. We have a song that we sing, sovereign, and John's going to lead us that day, and that's one of the songs that he sings. Sovereign means God is in control. No matter what's going on in your life, God is in control. Well, Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, and he says this, Oh, the depths and riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. If you could get on the space shuttle and you could go to every Every um, planet, every star that God hung, hung in place, every comet, if you could go and do that, by the time you finish with every universe that's in existence, you would just scratch the surface of who God is. He is unsearchable and unfathomable his ways. You cannot comprehend it. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? The answer is no one. So I'm going to ask that question again, and you're going to say no one, all right? Who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Here's another question. Or who has given first to him that it might be paid back to him? Y'all aren't sure. Who, uh, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? No. no one is the answer. Then check out the next verse. For from him and through him and to him are how many things? It was all created for him, not for you. Everything in all of creation is for God, from God, and to him be the glory. God's not like you. He's not like me. He has a category all his own, and he will not share that category with you. Second mistake we make is we think God could be managed. So I'm just going to tell you, God cannot be managed. Since God is too big for us to comprehend, we tend to shrink him into something we can't understand. I want a God I can see. I want a God I can control. I want a God I can tame and manipulate. But that's not the God of the Bible. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they um, had heard stories about um, these people named Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and even Joseph. For 400 years, they've been hearing these stories about some invisible God that calls Abraham to be the father of the whole nation. And then Jacob is one of the sons, and Jacob has his name changed to Israel. It's where we get the whole um, name of the, the nation of Israel. And then he has a son named Joseph, and Joseph goes, gets sold into slavery. Joseph eventually saves all of the Jewish uh, people, and, and, and it's awesome, except that they've been gone for 400 years, and now you're a slave. And all the Pharaohs who knew of Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're dead and gone, and now you're a slave, and life is miserable. And then you hear about this guy named Moses who, who was miraculously saved. He was put in the, in the Nile River and then Pharaoh's daughter adopts him. He grows up in the palace. One day he comes and kills an Egyptian. Pharaoh wants to kill him. He runs away for 40 years. And so your life is miserable when Moses shows back up 40 years later. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you're nuts. This is free labor. I'm not letting the people go. And then these plagues, there are 10 plagues that happen. These plagues start happening. Weird things are happening. Frogs, and Casey talked about frogs. And, and, and there's all these different things that happen. By the fourth plague, God makes a distinction. And the, so I think the fourth plague is gnats. Gnats everywhere, in their ears, in their food. It says it's coming out of their noses. They open their mouth, gnats come in. Except that God made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. 
So gnats everywhere on the Egyptians, all you have to do is look to a house of, a, of an Israelite. There's nothing. God makes a distinction between them. And every now and then Pharaoh goes, oh, I think I'll let the people go. And then he changes his mind until we get to the last God. And what you need to understand is all 10 of these plagues were direct attack from the real God on fake gods, on idols. He made their fake gods look foolish. And the last God that they had was they believed that Pharaoh was a God. I'm going to say lowercase g, not the God. And that his son was the next God. And then when Pharaoh died, his son would become the next God. And so the 10th plague said, every firstborn child of everyone is going to die unless you sacrifice an innocent lamb. An innocent third party must shed its blood. And you must take that blood and cover the doorposts of your house. And this is called the Passover. So the death angel is going to come. And if it sees the blood, it's going to say, this person has bowed their knee to God. And they are going to pass over. And your children will not die. But everyone who does not have the blood on the doorpost, their firstborn child will die. And it's the middle of the night. And there's this incredible cry across the, the nation of Egypt as all of their firstborn, including Pharaoh's son they thought was a god, dies. And so the Egyptians come up to you and they're knocking on your doors and they're going, please get out. And they're giving you gold and jewelry and silver. They're just saying, they, they're saying your God wins and we want you to leave so that maybe your God, the real God, will leave us alone. And you don't have to be told twice. God told you that you were going to get out and they were going to give you all kinds of jewelry and gold. And so you get out. You don't know where to go. There's this pillar of fire that shows up. And, and it's God in the fire and he begins to lead you around the wilderness and then the sun comes up and you're in the, you're in the desert and so that pillar of fire becomes a cloud not only to lead you but to cover you from the incredible desert sun. The problem though with God, God doesn't always lead you on a straight path. God does like this. So if you're watching them, if you had GPS on them, you had your little Fitbit and you could see what they were doing, they're going like this all over the place. They're not going where they need to go except that they're following God. And so Pharaoh sees this and he goes, they're lost, let's go get them. So he chases them to the Red Sea. And you're like, oh, a pillar of fire is between us and, and Pharaoh, but oh, we're in trouble. And then God opens up the Red Sea and you and the rest, two million Israelites walk across the Red Sea. Janie and I watched a, a documentary just a couple of weeks ago where they have found what they believe is the crossing of the Israelites. And if there is a crossing, if this really happened, I believe it happened, there should be thousands of artifacts on the bottom of the sea. And there are, there are things that are covered up with, with hundreds of years of silt, but it looks like a chariot wheel. And there's things, it's all over this place. Archaeology has proved it. But you walk through on dry ground and you get on this side, all of the Israelites, and you look back and, oh no, here comes Pharaoh. He's coming across. And what happens? God closes the water over them. They die. And you begin to sing because when you see an incredible God who can do anything, you sing. They began to worship. Oh God, the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea and they begin to believe. There is nothing our real God cannot do. And then they head towards Mount Sinai the mountain of God. Now, you need to understand that this has been going on for about 60 days at this point, but they're living in a tent, and I've lived in the tent for seven days, and that was enough, and I even had a nice shower and bathroom. But they're out in the wilderness, and, and, and they begin to think, we got all this money, all this jewelry, but, but there's no stores out here. Where are we going to buy water? There's no little... There's no Walmart where we're going to buy food. Our, our, our riches do us no good. And who wants to live in a tent forever? And they begin to moan. And you're following this guy named Moses. And Moses is just kind of different. I mean, let's just be honest. 
He's different. And one day Moses goes up on this mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and he comes back down. He said, I spoke to the real God. He has a message for you. You need to ceremonially cleanse yourself. Well, how do we do that? You got to take your clothes off, wash your clothes, not have sex for a couple of days, and you're going you're gonna to purify yourself before God. And oh, by the way, we're going to put a boundary around this thing called the mountain of God. And anyone who touches the mountain of God's going to die. And I know you new lifers. If God were to tell you this, Michael Thatcher's going to go, I'm going to touch it. And then if George is there, George is saying, no, I'll touch it. And you go, no, I'm going to touch it first. And you're going to be trying to touch it. And while you're deciding whether you should touch it or not, something happens. This cloud comes down on the mountain of God and there is thunder and there is lightning and there is an earthquake. And all of a sudden you're like, oh no, the real God's there. And Thatcher's going, I ain't touching it, you touch it. And George's going, I ain't touching it, you touch it. And you're petrified because the real God showed up. And look what happens. This is from the scripture. Look what happens in Exodus 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder, lightning, and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Can I tell you that your God, your mental image of God is too small. The real God showed up and scared everyone half to death. And I'm telling you, right after this experience of everybody going, don't talk to us, God, we don't want to talk to you. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and the law of God, and he's gone for 40 days. Well, actually, he doesn't even get 40 days in this one. And have you noticed that new lifers and Israelites are just the most patient people on the planet? It just comes naturally to us, right? I've seen you try to get out of the parking lot. They, they start saying, where's Moses? Is he coming back? He's not coming back. Aaron, number two, Aaron was, was the number two. <laughs> he's the backup pastor. He's number two, and they're like, Aaron, he's not coming back. We need a God, G. We need a God to take us back to Egypt. And can I tell you, whenever you make your own gods, it always leads you back to Egypt. It always leads you to slavery because your God is too small. And so Aaron, you'd think Aaron go, oh, no, absolutely not. We're waiting on the real God. Hey, give me your jewelry. And he fashions the jewelry into a golden calf, just like what they'd seen in Egypt. And and you're going, somebody should have said, hey, dude, less than 60 days ago, the real God showed up and made that golden calf look stupid. But nobody did. Instead, they said, this is your God. Look, I'm not making this up. This is in Exodus 32, 4b. That's the second half. Then they said, the leaders, because Moses was up on the mountain, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They reduced the real God to a calf, a golden calf made out of recycled jewelry, and then they uh, rewrote history, and they said, this is the God who led you out of Egypt. And then I think Aaron kind of got up, you know, I think he's going, oh, no, we've kind of messed up because he said, tomorrow we're going to have a worship service and we're going to sacrifice to the Lord, the, the, the big name, the Lord. He called the golden calf, the Lord. I'm surprised he didn't get struck dead. Look what happens, Exodus 32, 6. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings, not to the real God. They presented fellowship offerings, not to the real God. 
Afterward, they sat down to eat, drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. That word revelry means any kind of sexual immorality, sexual deviancy that you can think of. They did it in the name of worshiping their God. How in the world could they do that? See, once you've shrunken your God to something you can manage and control, you're in charge and you get to do whatever the heck you want to do because you're not following the real God. How could they see miracles, power, thunder, lightning, and actually say, we need a God we can control? How could they do that? How could we do that? Because we do it all the time. Now, I don't believe for a second that you have a man cave or a she shed, Cheryl, where you have a golden calf and you go, hang on, I need to go bow down to my golden calf to see if he'll moo at me. I don't think you do that. Our, our golden calves, our idols have to do with food, image, wealth, work, family, friends, relationships that aren't of God. We shrink the all-powerful God down to something we can put on a shelf and we say, God, you're just one of many things in my life. <laughs> what do you want from me, God? Do you want all of me? And God says, yes, I do. Well, you can't have all of me because you're just one of these many gods I have on my shelf. We, we worship those things when we give our best efforts, our best thinking, our best, our best money, our best everything. We give to those gods. And then, and then, when we prize all of those other things over God, what we're really saying is my golden calf is me. It's all about me. All of these things on this shelf, God, are about me, and I want you to bless all of these things so that my life will be better. And then when something goes wrong, you come to God not to worship him, not to get to know him, but to stomp your feet and demand, God, it's about time you got busy and made my life comfortable because it's all about me. How dare you let me suffer? You don't know what you're doing, God. We're spoiled little children who demand that the God of the universe, it's about time you operate on my schedule. See, this awesome God who spoke the galaxies into existence sent God the Son on a rescue mission. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were lost. And Jesus came to rescue us. He came to show us what God is like. The Bible says he's the exact representation of the living God. You want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. Jesus. And he came to build this bridge between God and humans, and there is no other religion that has a God that comes to save you. Every other religion is, I have to do these steps, and if I do enough of them, I might be good enough to get to God. Christianity is the only one where God came to get you. Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, according to the scriptures, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then we're invited to die to ourselves and follow God, and Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That, my friends, is biblical Christianity. So where'd this idea come from that Jesus is my self-help genie, that if I do the formula, you know, the formula, if I attend every now and then, if I, if I serve in fourth grade Sunday school, if, if I give a little bit of my income, if I go on a short-term mission trip, then God is obligated to make sure my life is comfortable. Where'd that come from? That's not in Scripture. 
And when you believe that, that your life is all about you, when bad stuff happens to you, you come to God and you go, God, what about the formula? I did the formula and you're not blessing me. And God says, it's not my formula. You made it up. Your life is all about you. See, Jesus said this, check this out. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. How come you don't see that on a t-shirt? Choose joy, that's a good one. And I love this, this is scriptural. Choose joy. Blessed, redeemed. We got all of this stuff. I've never, never once have I seen persecuted for the cause of Christ. Look what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Let's do that. Suffer for him. Let's see how well that sells. Let's see how many people come to a church that teaches we're supposed to suffer for the name of Christ. <laughs> Chip Ingram is the pastor who came up with this idea, this series. He wrote a book, and I'm reading his book, and I'm studying other stuff. But here's a story he shared about suffering. He says, I sat across the table from an undercover house church pastor in Hong Kong. So I'm, what I'm assuming, he didn't fill in all the blanks, but I think that this house church pastor was a house church pastor in China where it's illegal. And, and Chip meets him in Hong Kong where he can talk openly about this. Sat across the table from an undercover house church pastor in Hong Kong who came out of China to do the work, do some work and go to a seminar. On his last trip out, his wife was beaten by the police and she claimed to be the pastor of the church so her husband and none of the other people would get in trouble and they beat her to a pulp. Chip says, I'm on the edge of my seat and in my mind I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I could be very Christian with those police when I get home. He said, and I'm getting mad for this pastor. And then he gets to the end where I'm thinking in my good American Western Christianity, man, I know it would be sinful to do something really wrong, but I really want to take those cops out. And then with tears in his eyes, the pastor looks at me and he says, can you imagine that our God gave us the privilege to suffer for him? Even as he suffered for us, that's scriptural. Chip says, I was thinking embarrassingly, actually, and he said, I did not say this. That thought never crossed my mind, but he said, it never entered my mind that we, that we get in, to enter into his suffering, that the goal would be intimacy with God, the goal would be the glory of God, that the goal would be that God would take the difficulty and the pain of a difficult marriage or a hurting child or a physical disability or downward economy, and that the real goal is that the real God would meet you in the middle of incredibly difficult circumstances, and he would give you the ability to endure it so that your friends and your family and your neighbors say, there's something different about you because what you're going through would crush anyone else. That's biblical Christianity. And can I tell you, that's why it's not very popular. Living for a cause beyond yourself and beyond this life, making choices that reflect that God's in charge and you're not. Anything that competes for your atten attention can become an idol. And here's the problem. When, when I think that my golden calf is me, when I think I'm in charge, I choose what my God looks like. Do you know there are actually churches that only believe in eight, seven, eight of the Ten Commandments? It's like they're saying, you know, God had a good day when he, when he gave us the Ten Commandments. Good, not great. We'll give him a B. We'll give him an 80. You know, eight of them are good, but, but that one about don't commit adultery? Come on. Have you seen the country we live in? 
Everyone does that. Lighten up, God. Or the one about not being greedy, don't covet anything that your neighbor has. Have you seen where we live, God? Everybody's greedy in America. We all covet. If you didn't want us to covet, why'd you put us in America? As if it's God's fault the nation's been blessed. And what happens, and and I don't have this fluffy Bible. This is my mama's Bible cover, so get over it. What happens is instead of this being our authority, I was talking to the men at our Bible study the other night, there's not enough people under the authority of this thing here. We pick and choose. Oh, I like that one. Ooh, no, don't like that. Ooh, yeah, love, mercy. Ooh, no, judgment. No, 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 no. When you pick and choose which part of the Bible you're going to obey, there's a new God on the throne, and it's you. And I just want to tell you something. If you are on the throne of your life, your God is embarrassingly small. Because this world, this earth, is one gigantic Titanic that is sinking. And if you don't have the power, if you didn't have the power then, and you don't have the power now to raise the original Titanic, what makes you think you can deal with sin, corruption, gossip, sexual immorality? Your God is too small. See, I I hope you agree with me now that almost all of us have a distorted view of God. It's It's not big enough. So what do you do if you want to see the real God? He tells us in the scriptures. What must I do to see the real God? Seek him. Jeremiah twelve thirteen says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it's like Waylon, my, my two-year-old grandson, when we go, where's Waylon? Or we hide or whatever. He wants to be found, right? You know, children, they, they play the game. They want to be found. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> right there. God wants to be found by you. He's not a child, but he's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. And the scripture says, you will find him when your whole heart says, God, I don't care what this world says. I want to find you. God says, be very sure. I will make sure that you find me. So as we start this series, this journey over the next eight weeks, I want to challenge you to pray this prayer. God, I want to see you as you are, the real God. Not the God that I've made up in my mind, not the God that's being passed around in Christian circles. The real God, the God of the Bible. And we're going to do this journey. And it's my prayer that at the end of this journey, your God is so big, so powerful, that people don't even recognize you anymore because you have a faith that can move mountains. Would you bow your heads? I'm gonna pray this out loud, phrase by phrase, and if you want that from God, then you pray it silently where you are. God, I wanna see you as you are. The real God. Not the God that I made up in my mind. Not the God that's being passed around in Christian circles. The real God the God of the Bible. Father, change us as we see you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.